years ago, the headline in an Austin, Texas newspaper read, Man Experiences Heart Attack After the Rapture. Herbert Washington, whom co-workers said was unduly concerned with the rapture and the second coming of Christ, suffered a serious heart attack when his co-workers pretended they were caught away without him. The article reads, Last Tuesday, they laid work outfits on their chairs and hid in a supply room. And when Herbert came back from the restroom, he thought the rapture had occurred. The janitor, an outspoken Muslim, pretended to have witnessed everyone disappear and ran around the office in a panic. Herbert fell to the ground, clutching his heart, screaming, I knew you'd forget me, Jesus. What did I do wrong? He was taken to a local hospital. The employees emerged from the supply room and gathered up their extra clothes. We didn't mean to scare him to death, said one woman. He just always, he's just always talking about it. So today we decided to turn the tables on him. Washington underwent bypass surgery and is recovering well and digging into the Bible like never before, <laughs> says his wife. As, as you know, we have been working our way through the book of Revelation. And for the last seven weeks, we studied letters from the Lord to seven churches in the western region of Asia Minor. These were seven real churches. And as I said on a few occasions, these seven real churches also represented churches throughout the entire church age. From the beginning of the church in the first century to churches in our present day. Now if you recall, two weeks ago, we looked at the church in Philadelphia. Remember that? Philadelphia. Which was described... As a a faithful church. And in his letter to the faithful church, Jesus gave them a promise. And he said in Revelation chapter 3 verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance... I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour 
which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. As Jesus said, this hour of testing will involve the whole world. It will be global in nature. And this testing will be a period of great calamity and affliction upon those who dwell on the earth. Specifically, the unbelieving inhabitants at that time. Most Bible scholars see this global testing as a reference to the tribulation period, which will impact the whole world. But Jesus tells the faithful church that he will keep them from this worldwide hour of testing. And this morning, we're going to explore how that happens. This morning, we are diving into the very popular and mysterious and often debated event called the rapture. Now, it will be difficult to explain the rapture outside the context of the tribulation period. So the first thing I want to do is to give you a brief summary, a snapshot about the tribulation period. For this period really serves as the backdrop for the rapture. Okay? In a nutshell, the book of Revelation from chapters 6 through 18, chapter 6 through 18, provide a description of the tribulation period, which is a seven-year period broken in half into two three-and-a-half-year periods. Both periods are absolutely terrible. But the second period, the second half, is really terrible. And it's called the Great Tribulation. The tribulation period is a horrible time, full of unimaginable cosmic and natural disasters, diseases and plagues, demonic deception and torment, and unfathomable death and destruction. It will be a time of God's judgment and wrath. Literally, it is hell on earth. And that is no exaggeration. Hell on earth. But it will serve a divine purpose. That being to turn people to God. 
in my opinion, okay, my opinion, and this is going to sound crazy, the tribulation period is an act of love by God towards people who have rejected the truth. Rejected Jesus Christ. Primarily the Jews. And that's why this terrible period is also called the time of Jacob's trouble. God is love. We know that. God is love. And in His love, God is giving unbelieving people a small taste of what hell is really like in a last-ditch effort to bring them to repentance. And many Jews and Gentiles alike will turn to God during the tribulation period and be saved. It is an act of love. So where does the rapture fit in all this? Although there are differing views about the rapture, more specifically the timing of the rapture, and that's totally okay, okay? One's view about the rapture has no bearing on one's salvation. I want to make that point clear, okay? Your view of the rapture has no bearing on your salvation. However, I believe the Bible teaches that for those who have genuinely placed their faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and follow Him as Lord, they will be kept from God's judgment and wrath during the tribulation period, just as the church in Philadelphia was told by the Lord. I believe this is confirmed by the Apostle Paul in his first letter to the Thessalonians. When he told them that Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. And later he told them that God has not destined us for wrath. So I believe the church will not be present during the tribulation period. It will be raptured. And let me explain why I believe this way. If you have your Bible... Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And let me set this up for you. In the church of Thessalonica, the Apostle Paul was addressing the fears of of some in this congregation that loved ones who had passed away would be left in their graves and in some way miss out when Jesus returns for His church. That's what they feared. So in His attempt to put them at ease and to encourage them, 
Paul gives this church a play-by-play preview of what will happen. And this is what he says, beginning with verse 13. Listen to this. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now before we dig into this passage, I want to direct your attention to two words Found in verse 17. Verse 17. The two words are caught up. Do you see that? Caught up. In Latin, in Latin, it is the word rupturo. And that's where we get our English word for rapture. That's where that comes from. Okay. In the Greek... And that's important. This is written in Greek. In the Greek, it is the word harpazo. And it means to seize, to snatch, or to take away. It can also mean to claim for oneself. Or to rescue From the danger of destruction. That's what harpazo means. And in all of its meanings, there is always movement from one location to another. A movement that is both swift and forceful in nature. It is done with power. So in this passage, Paul tells us Jesus will come down from heaven. Not to the earth, for this is not his second coming, but in the air, in the clouds. We're told there will be a lot of noise, 
Maybe a shout. Maybe it's a command from the archangel Michael. And there is a trumpet blast. But that doesn't necessarily mean unbelievers will hear any of this. It could be something only the church hears. Then Paul reveals that the believers who have fallen asleep, which is a way to describe believers who have passed away, they will rise first. Just as Jesus died and rose again, so will the deceased believers rise again. Right now, the souls of believers are in heaven with the Lord. But when the rapture occurs, their bodies will be raised from the graves, raised from the seas and the oceans, raised from the ashes, brand new, healed, restored, and glorified, never to die again. So believers who have passed away get a head start, so to speak. Then believers who are still alive on the earth will also be caught up and snatched away, raptured, and their bodies will also be changed as well. This sounds great, but how does this happen? Well, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning with verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. And this mortal must put on immortality. The rapture occurs in the twinkling of an eye. Quicker than you can blink your eyes. One moment you are walking in the rain. And in a split second you are Above the rain clouds doing the Superman thing at 60,000 feet. With the Lord in new glorified bodies. We are here one moment, then poof, gone. Planes have no pilots, buses have no drivers, and small children are missing. I mean, you kind of get the idea, right? Can you imagine the panic and the chaos that is going to create? Now, some say the rapture defies all logic. It goes against common sense. However, 
the precedent for the rapture already exists in the Bible. It's already there. How did Enoch die? He didn't. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 5, the writer says, By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. God just took Enoch, snatched him away to heaven while he was still alive. What about the prophet Elijah? How did he die? Again, he didn't. We're told in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, as they were going along and talking, Behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire. That's something to behold, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. As Elijah and his replacement, Elisha, were walking and talking, God snatched Elijah up in a whirlwind to heaven while he was still alive. What about the Apostle Paul? Speaking in third person, which is what he did, he related his own experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Beginning in verse 2, Paul said, I know of a man in Christ, he's speaking of himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. Paul went to heaven. He saw and heard things, but he was not allowed to share it. So the biblical precedent for the rapture is clearly evident. And one of these days, it will happen to the church. Okay, I want to share something with you, I think might, lost my voice, might be helpful to connect all the end times pieces together, including the rapture. And I want to do this by using the ancient... Jewish marriage process as a guide. Okay? Now let me say, the Bible does not make this connection. 
So I don't want you chasing me out of here as a heretic. Okay? And I am not suggesting in any way that the ancient Jewish marriage process is representative of the end times. I am merely using it as a venue, as as a means for sharing information in a way that flows. Okay? Okay? We good? Okay. (sighs) Bear with me. So as you might imagine, weddings in the in the time and culture of Jesus' day were nothing like they are for us these days, for us in the West. Jewish marriages in biblical times were usually arranged by the fathers of the bride and the groom. And that would begin an engagement period, or what the Jews called the betrothal. Have you heard that word before? A betrothal. Okay. The betrothal was an, an important part of the marriage process, and it was as binding as the actual marriage itself. Those initiating the betrothal, along with witnesses, would sign a marriage contract that outlined the terms and the conditions of the marriage arrangement. It would spell out the responsibilities and the obligations of both parties to include the dowry that was to be paid. And once this contract was signed, the bride and the groom were considered legally married. But the marriage could not be consummated. In other words, they could not live together. They could not function as a husband and wife. The Apostle Paul tells us that the church, in a like manner, is betrothed to Christ. We are the bride of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, Paul writes as if he is the best man. And he states, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. Later, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, Paul describes this special relationship between a husband and wife as being a picture of Christ's special relationship with the church. Paul says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So the church is the bride of Christ. We are betrothed to Him. We are set apart for Him. Now in those days, it was a common custom for a bride to eventually join the groom's father's household. Did I just confuse you with that? That was a lot. She would eventually join the groom's father's household rather than the groom and the bride establishing their own household. So if the bride and the groom were of a marriageable age, after the betrothal ceremony, the bride would return to her parents' home. You follow me? And the groom would return to his father's house to build a place for them to live. Typically, it was an addition built onto the father's house. One day, Jesus told his disciples he would be leaving them soon. For he knew the cross was just days away. And the disciples did not take this news very well. So to encourage them, Jesus says this in John chapter 14, beginning with verse 1. You might know this passage. This is Jesus speaking. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you might be also. Just like a groom who leaves his bride to prepare a place to live in his father's house, we are told by Jesus that he too was leaving to prepare a place for his bride, the church. And where is Jesus? In heaven. And don't miss this. Jesus is not coming down to be where we are. Rather, He is going to take us where He is. To His Father's house. This is the Lord's promise to come back for His bride. For His church. 
Now back to the Jewish marriage. This process of adding on a new addition traditionally took a year or two. And the length of time was determined by the groom's father. And when the addition to the house was complete and the father was satisfied with it, the groom would be given permission to go get his bride from his in-law's house. In his excitement, the groom heads out to go get his bride with his best man and other escorts with him. But the bride would not know the exact time of his arrival. Typically it happened at night. So the groom usually announced he was coming with the blowing of a trumpet and a lot of shouting along the way. So the bride had some forewarning that the groom was on his way. Didn't Paul already tell us in 1 Thessalonians that when the Lord descends from heaven to meet us in the air, it will be with what? A shout and a trumpet of God. So the groom fetches his bride. And brings her back to his father's house for the wedding ceremony. There is music and dancing and rejoicing. It's a day of great celebration with friends and family. And once the wedding ceremony is over, the bride and the groom enter into the bridal chamber that was prepared by the groom. For seven days, the bride and the groom are in the bridal chamber. It's called the seven days of kupa. Kupa is a Hebrew word which means canopy or chamber. It's a time for intimacy where the marriage is finally consummated. It sounds like our version of a honeymoon. And understandably, for the sake of privacy, it's a time where the bride and the groom are secluded. Then at the end of seven days, with all the guests in attendance, the door is open and the bride and the groom come out of their seclusion and make their public appearance as husband and wife and the wedding feast in their honor begins. Now, the Bible tells us nothing about this seven days of Kupa, okay? And that makes me a little nervous and a little cautious. But I think it's interesting to bring up, and let me explain why. We just finished Revelation chapters 2 and 3, right? Where the Lord addressed seven real churches in Asia Minor. Seven churches, which also represent all churches during the church age. From the early 
first century church to the churches in present day. Beginning in the very next chapter, Revelation chapter 4, and all the way through chapter 18, with the overwhelming majority of it devoted to the tribulation period, the church is not mentioned. After the Lord spoke extensively about the churches in chapters 2 and 3, the church is not mentioned until we get to chapter 19. After the tribulation period has come and gone. And then in chapter 19, the church is identified as his bride and takes part in the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage feast. It seems to me that prior to the tribulation period, a time of worldwide calamity and affliction, a time of God's wrath and judgment, literally hell on earth, a time primarily reserved for unbelieving Jews who have rejected Jesus Christ, the church has been caught up, raptured to heaven with the Lord, like a bride that has been secluded, only to reappear for the wedding feast after the tribulation period is over. That's the only conclusion I can make, honestly. Now, you might completely disagree with everything I just said. And that's okay. You might be convinced that the church will go through the tribulation period, or at least a portion of it. I know there are people who do believe that. But I would challenge anyone to answer these questions. Why would the church need to experience a taste of hell when we are not going there? Why would the church go through a period called the time of Jacob's trouble? Remember, Jacob was renamed Israel. Why would the church go through a time called of Jacob's trouble? which is primarily intended for the Jews. And why would the church need to experience God's judgment and wrath when Jesus has taken God's judgment and wrath upon Himself for our behalf?
I can't get past those questions. And that is both encouraging and hopeful to me. Just as this message on the rapture was meant to be encouraging and hopeful to you. And whatever your view on the rapture may be, I hope we can all agree that as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't face death like those who do not know Christ. Because we know we pass from this life to an unimaginable life. A life spent with the Lord for where He is, that is where we shall be. And while we wait for that day, while we wait to go to the Father's house, a place prepared for us by Jesus Himself, we as a church need to be looking and living for Him like a bride that has been set apart to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. Thank you, Father, for giving us a glimpse of the future. Father, irrespective of the rapture and the timing of the rapture, My prayer, Lord God, for us as a people, as your people, that we would live like we are your people. Like the bride of Christ that has been set aside holy and righteous for you. Father, may you be honored and glorified in us. I pray, Lord, that Jesus would increase in our lives and that we would decrease. I pray that Jesus would be our absolute everything. Father, give us a heart and a zeal for you. Give us a passion for you. I thank you, Lord, for who you are and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I uh, I actually do watch a lot of news and kind of kind of stay on track as to what is occurring in our world, both both nationally and also worldwide. Right? It's kind of troubling, isn't it? It's kind of troubling, and the things that are are, incur- are that are occurring in this world. And I will explain these things later as we work our way through the book of Revelation. Okay. I mean, I'm going to tell you, maybe you've heard this before, not from me. But I truly believe, I'm, I'll be 62 in a few months, but I, I truly believe that I will see the rapture in my lifetime. In my lifetime. I will see the rapture. I will experience the rapture in my lifetime. So many things are happening in this world 
It's all just kind of lining up. It's just setting the stage. That might be the best way to describe it. The stage is being set, clearly set, for this, this end times thing to play out. Just kind of like connecting the dots. I believe I will see the rapture in my lifetime. I surely hope that for those who are here, those who, who are listening, that you would experience the rapture with me. And if not, I would hope you would be around for the tribulation period to experience hell on earth so that you would repent and turn to God. My worst fear would be, my absolute worst fear, especially for those who do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that they would pass before all of this occurred and there would be no second chances. None whatsoever. That's a scary thought. That's a scary thought. I don't know where you are with him. I can tell you, Jesus Christ loves you dearly. He proved it on the cross. What more could he do? I mean, that was, that was, the, that was the ultimate expression of his love. The ultimate. What more could he do for a people who had rejected him, who had turned on him? He gave himself on the cross. That for those who had rejected him, they might come to know him. He loves us that much. But our sin prevents us from experiencing his love, his forgiveness, his sacrifice. And we're told that sin is a problem. We all sin by nature and by choice. That's a fact. It's in our nature. And there's a penalty for sin. And that penalty is death and hell. Don't mean to offend anyone, but that's just the truth. That's the absolute truth. The penalty for sin is death and hell and eternal separation from God. But God loves us so much. Although he has to punish sin. He cannot turn a blind eye to sin. He can't do that. He can't put his hand over his ears and his, can't cover his eyes. He has to punish sin. He has to. Because he is holy and just. If he turns a blind eye, he's no longer holy and just. So he has to deal with it. He's holy and just and yet he loves us. So what did he do? He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to take our penalty. He satisfies His holy and just part and love by sending His own Son, who who never sinned, 
to die in our place. He loves us that much. He asks us to respond to Him. To repent of our sin. If you're going down the wrong way, you need to turn around and go the different way. And that should be toward Him, right? We turn toward Him. We place our faith in Him. Our trust in Him. I take Him at His word. He's, what He says is going to happen. What He says is true. Who He says He is, is absolutely 100% accurate. And then I surrender to Him as Lord. Lord, You are the boss of my life. You're my master. Whatever You say, I'm going to do. I might not like it, but You're the Lord and I am not. We repent of our sin. We place our faith in Jesus Christ and we surrender to Him as Lord. And Paul said in Romans chapter chapter, uh, 10 verse 13, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. That's a great promise. That's a great promise. And we're all whosoever's. Are we not? We are all whosoever. Whosoever. That's an individual, personal invitation to us. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. If you've never done that, I would love to help you through that. I would love to introduce you in prayer to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. If you're looking for a church home, we'd love to have you here as well. If there's something else, I would love to pray with you. Either this morning or I'm here on Mondays. Whatever the case may be, however the Lord is working in your heart, I just ask you to be obedient to Him and to respond to Him. This morning we talked about uh, an ancient, uh, the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony. It got me to think about uh, my my wedding my wedding ring, and my my wedding ring is a, is a symbol of my my love and my devotion. Uh, to my wife. That's what that is. In some respects, it's a, I don't know, it reminds me of a, of a covenant that I, I made with her. An agreement that we would love each other for better, for worse, richer, for poor. Right? That's what this represents. It's symbolic of that. The Lord's Supper is very similar to, it's, it's symbolic of a covenant, of a covenant that was made with us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Is it not? It's the Lord's Supper. And Jesus told us that whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we would remember Him and what He did on our behalf. That's what, the, that's what this is. It's a reminder. It's a ring. It's not, not the cross. It's the Lord's Supper. It reminds us of this agreement. As the bride of Christ, we made with the Lord. 
Paul tells us that before we, tis- that we take part of the Lord's Supper, that we need to examine ourselves and just to, to see if there's anything that the that, uh, Lord is, is dealing with us on. If there's anything that's amiss, any sin in our life, ask Him to bring it to our attention that we might confess it before Him. So while we wait for the others, just take a, just in the quietness, just, just ask the Lord, is there anything in your heart that you might need to deal with? It's interesting, we, we often refer to this supper that Jesus had uh, with his disciples before he was crucified. We often call that the Last Supper. Have you heard that? The Last Supper. But it's not. That's in Revelation chapter 19. The marriage supper of the Lamb. That is the, that is the supper we, we long for. But Jesus was sitting with his disciples and he took some bread. And he said, this bread represents my body that was broken for you. Broken for you. For you. He did this for you. And he told his disciples that eat. When you eat, think of me. May we eat. Then Jesus took the cup and he said, this cup represents my blood, blood of the new covenant. A covenant, like a marriage covenant. A covenant whereby we may be made right with Christ. Not because of anything we did, but only because of what he did. We get to enter into a new covenant because of his blood. We get to experience life. Blood represents life, not death. Life. We get to experience spiritual life only because of the finished and completed work of Jesus Christ. Jesus took the cup and gave it to his disciples and drank to drink. May we do likewise. Let me close us in, in prayer uh, for our, our offering and also for our fellowship. Uh, just, just remember, our offering baskets are back near the door. If you feel so inclined to give, we would appreciate that. And then also hope you can stay for our fellowship. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time together with uh, my Christian friends and brothers and sisters. And Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, you would just bless us and, and just give us... Uh, the comfort and the hope uh, that we so desire, Lord. Uh, Heavenly Father, we live in trying times. You know this. But Father, help us to be steadfast, to be focused on you, and to live for you. Father, I pray for our, our, our time of, of, of giving, of our tithes and our offerings. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bless the, the gift and the giver. Lord God, I pray we would give with a cheerful heart, a genuine heart, a grateful heart. And as a church, Father, you'd help us to use your money in a wise way. And, Father, for our fellowship afterwards, Father, I pray that it would be sweet. Father, bless the food. Bless it to our bodies. Bless those who have brought food and prepared food. And, Lord, again, I just pray that this would be a time that honors you and glorifies you. I thank you, Father, for who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.